This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is Keys to the City with Anthony Weiner. Welcome to Keys to the City, Episode 12, a podcast about the problems facing New York City and the enduring power of ideas. I'm Anthony Weiner. From existential threats to pet peeves, each week together we'll resist the temptation to curse the darkness. Instead, we'll try to light a candle by bringing to light things that have worked before or new ways to get things done. And today on Episode 12, we're going to go for a big one. It's the problem of a shortage of affordable housing in New York City. And I rely on two ideas from my book of ideas. One, idea number 47, which is create a rental housing program that is not 80-20, 80 at market rate, 20 affordable, but one that is 60-20-20, 60% market rate, 20% middle class, and 20% affordable. And a second idea, idea number 120, which is build a mitchell Lama program for the 21st century. Before I define what those programs are and explain what I think should be done, it's important that we understand the limitations of what government can and can't do in some places. And you've heard me mention this on previous episodes. In the case of New York City, we have, between the years 2000 and 2022, gained 800,000 new residents. During that time, we built 438,000 units of housing. That's a lot of housing to be built in a 20-year period, but not nearly enough to keep up with the demand. And so what's happened? As New York City has come back the way it has, and putting aside the moment that we're in post-COVID and the problems that we're having with crime and other issues, we are a city, arguably the destination city for the world, for the creative class, for people who want to come to start a new way of life, someone who wants to come to the United States often wants to come here. And keeping up with the demand for housing has turned out to be an unexpected problem. Well, when we first started some of the housing programs in this city in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the idea was not so much we needed to find a way to keep up with demand. The idea was we had to build housing to attract people. We were afraid there was going to be a dearth of housing. These were the years in the 70s when, frankly, a lot of people were abandoning housing in the city. And a lot of the programs that were created were the idea of trying to take over communities to make them livable communities for people to move into. The concern about affordability was kind of a secondary one. Now we have a circumstance where to find an apartment in New York City, especially in Manhattan, is virtually unattainable for so many people. The median home price in New York City is over $800,000, and in Manhattan it's over $1.6 million. In Brooklyn, the median home price is now over $1 million. And unlike other cities where predominantly the housing is owned by the person. We're a rental city by a ratio of about two to one. And we also have an enormous number of people living below the poverty line. So how have we kind of chosen to kind of deal with this problem? 
how do we plan on moving forward? It is estimated that by the year 2030, we will need to build another 560,000 units. And you might be saying to yourself, how are we going to do that when in the last two years we've only built about 20,000 units a year for the last two years? That is why this subject is not only the one that is most challenging, but also most kind of vexing for citizens because you've got to figure out a place to live. You know, so many people, 78% in the city, spend more than 30% of their income on rent. Now, I choose that number because that's what we were taught in home economics classes. If you have a balanced budget in your household, you should pay no more than 30% for your rent. Well, that's a dream. 50% is more like it for most New Yorkers. So how have we divided up this problem? Well, what we did first is for the very poor in our city, we built the Housing Authority, what's sometimes called NYCHA, the New York City Housing Authority. It's a partnership with the federal government and in some cases with the state government where about half of our poor live in public housing. These are people that less than 5% of the city lives in public housing, but 14% of all of our poor live there. About half of the public housing residents live in poverty. The problem with the housing authority projects, and they're plentiful, and they're among the very best in the entire country. All throughout the country, over the course of the last 30, 40, 50 years, cities have been imploding and blowing up and wiping away their housing authority stock because they didn't keep it up. Unlike those places, we've done an excellent job keeping up our housing authority stock as best we could. Now we are in a situation where it's 20 and $30 billion worth of repairs are necessary to those projects. And unlike the partnership that we shook hands on when these were built with the federal government, now the federal government has basically gotten out of that business. So one challenge is how we keep up, maintain, and keep the housing authority projects as good as they can be. But that's not the subject for today's conversation. Today I want to talk about the ladder out of poverty, the ladder that should exist for middle class low-income, middle-class, working-class housing, going all the way up to market-rate housing. So what are the tools at our disposal? Well, it used to be that the city had land. We had land that we either owned or land that had been abandoned. In Ed Koch's years, there were hundreds of thousands of units of what were called in-ram housing, which are housing that had basically been turned over to the city because the homeowner couldn't afford it or just decided to leave the city. Can you imagine that? This is not that long ago. It's just in the 1970s. So what the city did then, and one of the biggest housing initiatives, is they basically put these things up for auction. Said, if you'll build housing here, you can basically have this land for a song. Well, that doesn't exist very much in today's world. And again, that's a sign of progress. But one of the things that the city can do and does have control over are some properties that they own, some properties that we have control of. And we also have the ability to zone things differently. If you take a piece of land that was zoned for a six-unit building and you change it to a zoning for a 30-unit building, immediately the marketplace has some place that they can go to try to do this building. And this is where the so-called 8020, the 421A program comes in, which was recently allowed to end. Basically said, you build in these certain places, we will give you tax incentives in order to do it. And really what it is is an abatement of the very high taxes that we have in New York City. Unlike in other places, unlike in other cities where it's expected that you should pay about 10% of your revenue for taxes, in New York City, because we're such a high-tax state, about 30% of your income winds up, if you're building a housing, winds up going to taxes. So we use the abatement of those taxes to build units and we say, if you want to build here and you want to take advantage of this housing, of this tax abatement, you've got to build the type of housing we want. In the past, what we've said is, 
You go ahead and build your market rate housing because that's how you're going to make your money. That's your incentive. But you have to also build of the 80%. If you put 80% into market rate housing, meaning you can charge whatever you want for it, 20% has to be reserved for poorest New Yorkers. And I believe that that program needs to change. Some changes were made recently to make many more incentives for not only the poorest of the poor, but also middle-class housing as well, all the way up the ladder. Now, this 421A program, which has been around a long time, it's been around since the days that I described earlier when we were just concerned that no one would want to build anywhere, has recently been allowed to lapse. And one of the arguments for letting it lapse is in the past, when it's come up for renewal and it hasn't been renewed, the period leading up to it phasing out leads to an explosion of activity for people trying to get in under the wire. That didn't happen this time, whether it's because of COVID or the decline in the market in general or higher interest rates, that didn't happen. So we need to bring back that program in a big way and in a way that uses the tools we have, tax abatements, zoning, and any properties that we have, to get some of those units built, some of those rental housing units. The next thing is letting people own a piece of the rock, letting people own a piece of New York City by creating housing that people can buy. And the most popular way to do that is through housing cooperatives, which is you basically own a share in the cooperative, but you don't actually, you basically control your own unit, have the ability to buy and sell your own unit, but there are rules that are governed by a cooperative agreement and a cooperative company. We created a program, and this is idea number 120, where we created the Mitchell Lama program. It was created in 1955. It's named for Senator Mitchell and Assemblyman Lama, if you need to know. And what it basically did was used eminent domain and then went out and said to developers, we will let you make a limited amount on these properties. Not everything you possibly can. It was between 6 and 7.5%, but we will give you this land. And we will let you make that profit. And since we're going to hold down the profit you're going to be able to make, we're going to make a good, comfortable profit. 7% is not bad. We are going to be able to sell these units at a reduced price, and we're going to sell them as kind of working-class housing. 269 developments later, 105,000 units later, it's been a big success. Now, as with all of these deals, there's a time limit on them. They say, we'll give you a tax abatement for a certain number of years. In this case, it was 20 years. In some cases, 25 years. And some of them have aged out, and we've had to incentivize them to stay in. But the method and the idea was the right one. And by the way, if you want to sell your Michelama apartment, there are certain limitations on how you do that as well, so we keep them affordable. These are two programs that have been successful, but they are not perfect. There are some people who have argued, let's just go into the business of building housing ourselves as the government. Well, that's not going to work for a lot of reasons, not the least of which it's extraordinarily expensive. Also, we would be competing with the private sector. Our tools are tax abatements, property that we have, and zoning, how we use our valuable real estate here in the city. So those are a couple of ideas. I know they sound simplistic. It's complicated because costs are very high. We have a vacancy rate right now that is for the first time at 1% for affordable housing in the city. It's a challenge. We are building, you know, it costs a lot, what I just described to you. We gave out $1.77 billion in tax breaks and got 64,000 units out of it in recent years. I'm not sure how great that return is, but remember, you've got to compare it to something. And in the case of having no incentives or having no program, it certainly is a success. So those are some ideas. And when we come back after the break, we're going to hear from someone who lives this experience, who lives these programs with boots on the ground every day, understands what it takes to get stuff passed, understands what it means to be a resident looking for affordable housing, understands what it is to deal with developers who are good guys and bad guys. And we'll have that right after the break on Keys to the City.
So welcome back to Keys to the City. And for those of you who've listened to the podcast before, you know the structure here. I introduce a subject, talk a little bit about it, try to sprinkle in an idea or two, and then bring in a guest who can opine on my opinions. And we have found that the very best guests are one that have a foot both in problem solving themselves, but also an understanding, an intimate understanding of government, which is where most of our ideas are addressed. And today's guest is really a perfect embodiment of that. Uh, Gifford Miller and I overlapped in the city council. He was elected in 1996. I left in 1990, I want to say 1998, that's right. And he was the speaker of the city council from 2002 to 2006, one of the most powerful figures in city government. And he, his accomplishments were plentiful, probably best known. I maybe disagree with this, Gifford, probably best known for bringing the high line into reality. That's pro- probably your, a signature accomplishment of yours. And since, since Gifford Miller's left the city council, he founded Signature Urban Properties, which describes themselves as pursuing transformational development in transitional urban areas. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Thanks. So tell us a little bit about what those areas that you focus on when you say transitional urban areas, as I take that to mean you're not building in Hudson Yards, you're not building in Park Slope, you're building in communities that really need affordable housing? Yeah, more particularly communities that need some kind of change. So what we don't do is we don't sort of find some church's parking lot and then put up a building on it. We try to do larger scale projects in areas where the project itself can help spur additional change around it. So the best example of our of our work is in the Bronx along the Sheridan Expressway. And what we did was we bought up about two thirds of a failed industrial zone and which was characterized by a lot of crime and not a lot of economic activity or legitimate economic activity. And we rezoned it. it was the largest private rezoning in the history of the Bronx. And so far, we're about to complete the final of 10 buildings with about 1,700 units of affordable housing and a couple of playground. There's an elementary school. So basically, what we did was try to marry the existing residential neighborhood, which was separated from a park across the Sheridan Expressway, which is now a boulevard, which is also great and bring those two areas together with something that complemented it rather than was dragging it down. Well, that's a great outcome. Tell us the path you took to get there. I think most New Yorkers agree on the broad outline that, you know, we should be doing what we can to encourage the development of affordable housing and that we've got plenty of kind of Gold Coast housing that we read about in the newspapers. And I've done some episodes about that. But tell us a little bit about the process of building affordable housing. What are the challenges? And Who's in this business with you? Who I mean, we hear about the relateds and these big companies that do the type of glamour housing that New York might be known for. Who are in business with people like you? What animates that business? And how does that process work? Well, the rezoning part, I think, is this sort of a particularly specialized aspect that I was able to get a this was in 2006, 2007. Wall Street was awash with money and people were trying to find things to do, basically. And I was able to convince some uh, hedge fund, basically, that it was a good idea to invest in the poorest congressional district in the country. Based on sort of my experience and in, in yours as well, like in zonings and in and government work. So we went through the rezoning with we using actually private capital, which was and I'm not sure people would really do that again. It was very expensive, took a really long time. But we were fortunate to have you know quite patient partners. 
and the environmental process cost a fortune. It was uh, somewhat successful, the rezoning. I don't know whether people would do it again, which is a sort of probably a different podcast. But then once we had the entitled land, you know, we partnered with an existing affordable housing developer and who has their own construction company called Monadnock Development and Construction, very well known and very well regarded firm. So they've been our partners all, all the way along. And what happens is you have to go out and finance these projects. These are 100% affordable buildings. There's no market in the area because the market in the area can't support new construction because, again, this is the poorest congressional district in the country. Yeah, but pause on that point before you move on. So in other words, what people can afford to pay for housing, for new housing, you can't make it in an affordable way and make a profit if you're a builder. Is that essentially it? Explain that a little bit, just because people don't have enough money to pay the rent necessary to pay for a building. Is that it? Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, so if you're going to construct a building, you got to go to a bank, basically. Very few people construct buildings, you know, entirely with all equity, with their own capital. So you got to go to a bank, you got to borrow money, and you got to say, you know, this is what it's going to cost, and here's how I'm going to pay you back. And the way that they look at how you're going to pay them back is they look at what the revenue you're going to get off of this new building. So that means you got to look at the area and what are the market rate rents in that area. And in the area that we're talking about, the market rents just aren't even close to high enough to be able to justify the cost of new construction. And essentially, that's the difference between what people consider affordable housing and what people consider unaffordable or market rate housing. The difference is money. So you can't, the way you create affordable housing is that you figure out who you want to rent to based on how much income they have. So you target your units to maybe sometimes to the formerly homeless who have almost no income whatsoever, sometimes to people making $50,000 a year, families making $80,000 a year. There's a a wide range. And you take 30% of their income because that's what the federal government has sort of set as the standard for what you can charge somebody for rent that isn't, you know, that they can afford in theory. Although even for a lot of people, 30% of their income, depending on how much income you have, can be a lot. But at any rate, that's what you get is the rent. You take those rents and then you basically go to, in this case, the government, because the government provides the financing. And you say, this is how much money I have to buy a mortgage to build this building. And then whatever the difference between that number is and the cost of the construction, you have to get in some form in order to make it possible to do. So if you can get a $50 million mortgage and the building's going to cost $100 million, then the government has to basically give you $50 million in order to make it possible. So while it might not be intuitive, the cost of building housing is actually not the same no matter what neighborhood you build it in, even though it seems like to people, okay, the amount of cement, the amount of labor, because in order to pay the fundamental cost, which is the financing cost, if you're going to build for middle class people, you have to, you can get more in rent and therefore you're financing less and your costs are less, right? So it is a choice when you're building that if you decide to build for the very poorest, it's going to cost someone a lot more, right? Yes. Well, certainly there's a bigger gap, right? That's the point. So, I mean, in general, you know, the cost of construction can, the biggest variable in the cost of construction depends upon whether you're doing organized union labor or prevailing wage labor, as as it's called, or whether you're doing non-prevailing wage. 
because there's a significant cost change in that, which is almost probably it's about twice as expensive to do it with, with prevailing wage construction. And also typically uses a f- far fewer New Yorkers and New York City residents and particularly people of color. But that's, a, again, also probably a different podcast. So yes, if you are building... So, and of course, the cost of the land is a variable that's significant. But in essence, you know, if you're building something in the Bronx, or you're building something on the Upper East Side, the construction costs are going to be somewhat similar. It's a little more expensive in Manhattan because everything's a pain. But in general, they're going to be pretty similar. The gap that you have to fill is going to be much greater, regardless of where you are, if you're planning to rent to people with far fewer resources because they can't pay more, they can't pay the same rents. And that's just less money to go towards the project. So somebody else has to make it up somewhere else. And that's generally speaking, the government. So the government comes to you, if through whatever programs and says, all right, Signature Urban Properties, you're doing this project in the Bronx. It's in our, meaning the citizens' interest in having more affordable housing for these very low-income people in this part of the Bronx. And they say, we are going to give you money to fill in the space between what rents can pay and the cost of the building in order to help make this affordable housing happen. It costs the city a good deal of money. And you're just, I'm curious, you lined up investors who said, okay, we're willing to make maybe less profit to do this. Are they being altruistic? I mean, why wouldn't a hedge fund just want to invest in fancy apartments on the west side of Manhattan? The hedge fund invested in the rezoning. And we were hopeful that the rezoning would provide a solid return. And basically, we were upzoning significantly, going from, you know, like one story, built the right, what they call FAR, but the right to build one story or two story buildings to being able, you know, our buildings are 14 to 17 stories. The hedge fund then had to stay in for a while because they, that turned out not to actually make money because of the timing. Basically, we, right. we, we came out of the rezoning right in the middle of a significant economic downturn. So, But that's, I think, specialized. In the case of the actual affordable housing development, yeah, so basically the government, it's not they don't come to me. The government has programs that they've outlined and they say, if you want to do this, this is the way that we help. And it's all levels of government starting very importantly, where the federal government provides significant what are called low-income tax credits, low-income housing tax credits, which are basically big investors invest money into these kinds of projects because they're given a tax credit for doing so. And particularly banks are required as a result of the redlining legislation. Redlining is that there used to be that banks would only loan money into rich areas. And and basically, uh, there's a bunch of laws that now prevent banks from being able to do that. They have to do work everywhere. And so banks in particular have to make investments in communities that they operate in. And so there's a lot of banks that have to put a bunch of money into things like affordable housing because they're required, essentially required to by the federal government. But then there's also state subsidy, there's city subsidy. There's like, it is a very complicated program, but in the end, it comes down to the simple point, which is the rents don't cover the construction costs, so somebody else has to come up with it. Right, and in terms of the arrows in the quiver for the government to operate, they're fairly blunt things, right? Tax abatements, tax credits, or they can write a check. I guess in some cases they can do things like 
we will change the zoning here and reduce the cost or maybe even give you land. I imagine those types of things are less common nowadays that New York City is more or less full up. But those are kind of the blunt objects, the blunt tools that the city taxpayer, the city governors, city council speakers, members of Congress, those are the things we have to throw at this problem, right? Yes, and bonds. So basically, a bunch of the financing comes through something called HDC, which is the Housing Development Corporation, which the city operates. But it's, it's sort of on its own books and it essentially puts out bonds that people buy and, and they use the proceeds from the bonds to finance a large portion of these kinds of projects. New York City, for sure, has the most sophisticated, most aggressive housing efforts in the country. And we need them. Because, you know, it's much more expensive to build housing in New York than it is in Topeka. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about kind of you putting on your politician hat again. We hear a lot about this kind of decree that people make sometimes when they're running for office, that they say, let's make all housing 100% affordable. There was recently a conversation in the new congressional district that represents Southern Manhattan in Brooklyn where there's a piece of land in lower Manhattan down by ground zero. And there was a conversation about whether it should be 100% affordable. Take us from the path to that decision and what it means in terms of how much housing you might get, whether that makes sense from an economic perspective and where the rhetoric meets the reality of what decision you're really making if you decide to do something like that. So, I mean, in a case like that, the government owns an asset that's valuable. That's a valuable piece of land down there. And that is an area where for sure the rents that you can get absolutely, you know, cover the cost of the construction. And so there's a lot of people that would line up to build that building and pay good money for that property. So, and that's of course, and then if you decide that it's going to be 100% affordable, well, then the value of that property goes away, right? In fact, it has negative value because in fact, in order for it to be built as 100% affordable, not only can the government not get any value for the land, it's going to have to turn around and put an enormous amount of money into that property in order for somebody to build 100% affordable. And I think the question, I mean, so in a world of unlimited resources, it would be great if all over the place, all anyone was doing was building affordable housing, but we don't live in a world of unlimited resources. So we have to decide how to use the resources that we have and whether and so there, you know, this is a common question about what's the level of affordability. A lot of people feel, and they're not wrong, that there are huge numbers of New Yorkers who don't make sixty thousand dollars a year, you know. And so, is it really affordable to building affordable housing that's focused for people who make sixty thousand dollars a year? You know, what about people that only make fifteen or twenty or that have no income but that are homeless? These are tough questions, but it's cheaper to build housing for people who make 60,000 than housing for people who make 15 because you know the rents and the gap that has to be filled. So in the end, these are the sorts of questions that you and I grappled with when we were in government. It's about resources. And then of course, you know, there's a lot of money that goes to housing, but we also have to pay for the police and we have to pay for parks and we have schools and you only have so much money. So it is a, these are sort of resource intensive questions. And in the example you're giving there, it's very expensive to build 100% affordable housing in lower Manhattan to the government. 
you know, as opposed to do it. You, so for whatever the cost was and the net cost that would cost the government, you could produce a great deal more housing somewhere else. And that's a choice that you have to make. Well, that's part of the thinking behind another sector where we say this notion of 80-20 or what I suggest, you know, having a middle class tier of 60-20-20, that's a different piece of where people who are getting the benefit of building in New York, that if they They'll get certain incentives to not, even though they could go 100% market rate to incentivize them to build at lower tiers. We offer them some advantages as well. This does touch on what I think can be called a philosophical question. And I don't know if you have a view on it. There is this question about the integration of communities, about using housing policy to say, not only do we want there to be affordability, but we want affordability to be integrated with market rate. Because there used to be this notion of, well, you can go build over here these fancy buildings, but you are going to be required somewhere else to build affordable. And it actually got us more units doing that way. But we made a philosophical decision based on a value of let's have integrated communities to have those things together, market rate and affordable mixed together. And that decision, putting aside the merits of it, costs money, right? I mean, you actually are making a decision there. You're going to have less building in the Bronx. If we lived in that world today that you could transfer those those certificates to build affordable housing, you building in the Bronx would probably benefit in ways that you'd get, you'd go to some rich builder and say, you're required to build 30 units. We can actually get 60 units if you build it here in the Bronx, right? Yeah, probably. In fact, that is exactly what used to happen. You know, honestly, I have mixed feelings about it. I think it's a really tough question. I mean, I, on the one hand, you know, there's just so much need and so much demand. I mean, so as an example, Anthony, when, when we open up a new building and let's say it has 200 units in it, we'll get 50,000 applications. Wow. You know, I mean, and part of that is because they've made it very easy to apply. So a lot of people actually, interestingly, even there's a lot of people who in that group who don't qualify for the actual rents and, and some who don't actually you know, ultimately want to move from, let's say their families in Brooklyn, you know, they decide I don't want to move to the Bronx or, or vice versa. But, but, but the point is the demand is overwhelming. And so on the one hand, you know, it's sort of like we should be maximizing every single conceivable opportunity we have to create more housing. On the other hand, you know, I'm uncomfortable with the notion that, you know, sort of you just keep building, you know, for only one you know, the richest of the rich in certain areas. And then, you know, you're sort of, you're shoving the rest of the population out. So I'm, un- I'm very uncomfortable with that as well. I mean, I, I think I'm certainly a fan of a inclusionary zoning, which is the concept of increasing people's right to build, but requiring them to build a percentage right. affordable on site. I think that's a good use of the resources because when the one sort of inexhaustible resource that the city has is zoning, you know, it, when you, when you upzone somebody and for you, we did this for years, years and years and years as a city, we upzone places all over the place and made people enormous amounts of money and got, you know, you know, you get taxes and you get uh, businesses and stuff, but we didn't get enough back for it. And in fact, when I was speaker, that was we fought very hard to establish the concept of inclusionary zoning and ultimately prevailed upon the Bloomberg administration to change the laws because for a long time they wouldn't 
let the city mayor was opposed to any inclusionary zoning at all. So I like that. But it's a tough choice. Again, all of these kinds of resource questions are hard. If it was easy right. to decide, you know, yes, let's give all the money to parks and not give any money to police, it would be easy. But you can't do that. So these are difficult questions. Let's conclude on an area that perhaps is outside of your specialty, but we've talked about from some from time to time. You and I both represented communities that had this mythical Mitchell-Lama housing in it, which was on the ownership side where we kind of in in the realm of successful government programs, although it aged out and a lot, it caused some friction when they did, it kind of created this notion that, well, we're going to build affordable, we're going to give people a reasonable profit, but they're going to be limited in their profits. But the straw that stirred the drink was the city's or the state's availability of kind of land that they took over and then handed off to developers. You developed a site that you described as, as underutilized, though, an area that might have been a candidate, and correct me if I'm wrong, might have been a candidate for some type of eminent domain proceeding. Maybe the city should take it over and build apartments. That's less likely to happen today for the reason you mentioned at the very top, that we're, there's not a lot of space sitting. I remember when I was in the city council, you might remember this as well, a few times a week, a couple of times a month, they, they would send out a pretty thick book of properties that were for sale. Yep. And that book reduced down to like a sheet of paper every once in a while, there would be a... But could you have, have taken that same property that you developed and done a different type of housing, done a Mitchell-Lama type program for the 21st century? I mean, I don't know whether, you know, yes, we could, if the, there are some home ownership programs that the city has, but they're, they're not used a great deal because they don't, they're quite specific and they're not very broad. There's certainly not, there's not a, a huge sort of Mitchell Lama push, as you'd say. The reality of what the neighborhood that we were talking about at the Sheridan, near the Sheridan was there, there wouldn't have been a great number of people who would have had any significant resources to put towards purchasing right. an apartment. So it would have required, you know, a lot of, it would have been different than the way you're, the, you and I remember the Mitchell Lama. But in theory, yes. I mean, this is, I think home, there's a, home ownership should absolutely be a part of the affordable housing program in a bigger way than, than it is for the right kinds of uh, um, uh, programs. You know, you can make a, re, you can make a real difference and a mix of home ownership and rentals, I think it makes for better neighborhoods. Yeah. And also, I think one of the things you need to have is a ladder of housing, like people are living in public housing generationally because we don't have that next tier for them to move out to. And we don't frequently realize that it is not, you know, housing is not all one thing. But I think- In particular, the Bronx is a great example of that. You know, there's a lot of like affordable housing. There's a lot of housing that, you know, market, but the market is, is very low. There's not a lot of that sort of aspirational middle-class housing that's available in the Bronx. So that if you, you know, you go, you grow up in the Bronx, you go to school, you make it, you know, far too many of of those success stories, you know, are ending up in Pelham or, you know, New Rochelle and not staying in the Bronx. Yeah. And that's something that Ruben Diaz and the borough president was very focused on. And and I'm sure Vanessa is still. So there's work to be done there. But you're absolutely right. We do need a ladder. Well, let me let me just to say, concluding on, on my side of it, I'm grateful for you taking so much time with us that, you know, at the foundation of this whole conversation is this idea that these are high class problems to have. A lot of the programs and housing that we created were when we just wanted to populate the city. We wanted to make sure people came here. The Mitchell Lama 
was we had a whole different challenge with our housing at that time. And that is we thought no one wanted to come and we had to figure out a way to get them here. Now that we have a completely different problem, which is a giant almost structural imbalance between supply and demand and how we make sure that we don't become a city that is all one thing that you just mentioned. But I really do appreciate your taking the time. Where can people find you? Are you on Twitter? Are you anything like that? Do you have a social media I presence? On, I am on Twitter. I am. I Are you about a, to look up what your Twitter handle is? I am because, <laughs> because I think I'm AG Miller 92. But I have o- over 700 followers, which is really pretty amazing. Well, now, uh, now this, this now should we're spike it into the 720s. <laughs> yeah. AG Miller 92. That is my Twitter handle. Terrific. Well, Gifford Miller, thank you very much both for your service to the city and your service to the residents and the housing that you're, you're building. You're, you are one of the people that, you know, sometimes people get into government and then they use their opportunities when they leave government to take advantage in the worst sense of the word. You're doing it in the best sense of the word. And for that, I think uh, I speak for our listeners. We're grateful. And thanks for joining us in Keys to the City. Thank you, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Talk to you soon, I hope. You got it. Bye-bye. And so there you go, a great conversation about a really challenging issue that has a lot of moving parts. And there are a lot of people, as you heard in that conversation, that do this kind of work full time. This is, you know, as I said, an easy issue to demagogue on. It's an easy one to, we saw recently when we had congressional elections, there were candidates that were saying, reserve an entire area, a retire building for only affordable and didn't think about whether or not we would be able to actually do that with the private sector had a say in it. These are not, as with a lot of issues, not a choice between black and white, but a lot of gray areas and trying to figure out the best use of government leverage. And sometimes it doesn't always go the way we like. But this is, of all the challenges we talk about, you know, housing is an existential one. It is one that we ultimately have to defeat. So that's episode 12 next week, next Thursday. As every Thursday, another episode will be dropping. We really appreciate the support you've given this program. A lot of people seem to be enjoying it. We have an email address for people to offer ideas and critiques and sometimes fact check me, which is happening more times than I would like. Keys to the city at wabcradio.com. You can also find this and all of the podcast products that are produced by the talent here at WABC Radio on the Red Apple Podcast Network. That's where you can find Keys to the City. You can also find it anywhere that you get podcasts. You can download, subscribe. Some places let you leave reviews. We like those as well. Also, you can find my other podcast, The Middle, which is a download of my Saturday show, which we do every Saturday at 2 o'clock from 2 to 3 Whereas I like to say we push off from the left and the right and talk about some ideas on how we can come together. That's available as well. And also my 3 o'clock show on Saturdays with Curtis Lee will left versus right. Sometimes we actually do have left versus right debates, but more often than not, it's just us talking about our common experience running for mayor in New York City. We comment a little more on local issues and that. We Hopefully you'll download that one as well. So I will see you next Thursday when it drops. We appreciate all of your support here on Keys to the City. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences 
leaders in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com. 